we had a family discussion at our house uh, four and a half months ago, I think it was. Um, we've had a couple of family powwows uh, recently. Um, this one in particular was um, uh, about a big decision that we needed to make uh, regarding uh, bringing a couple of uh, kids into our home, which of course affects the whole family, right? And it affects the plans of the family and a number of other things. And so we had, um, we had 24 hours to make the decision and so it was a, uh, we had our family dinner and then we had a conversation and talked through all of the ramifications of what this would mean um, with our kids. And uh, it just so happened that we also had company that night. Um, some of you guys met uh, Serena Wig uh, from India. She was at our missions conference. And she was staying at our house, so she was unintentionally, uh, but unavoidably, part of a very important uh, family discussion that we were having. Um, if you're new or newish uh, to Church on the Rock, that's what, uh, that's what this month is gonna feel like. Um, the, the tone, um, of this morning, uh, actually of these four weeks that we're talking about repentance, is not, is not always the tone of our time together. And yet, as a family, there, there are moments where certain conversations are necessary. This isn't exactly a conversation. Uh, I'm gonna talk from the Word of God. Um, you're gonna wrestle over as you listen, and then we'll go to our house churches tonight and possibly discuss some more what it, what it means. Um, so if you are uh, newer to Church on the Rock, um, I do want you to know uh, that uh, the God of the universe, uh, your creator, um, has sent his spirit here to the Church on the Rock gymnasium uh, to speak with you, to connect with you in a special way. And even if it's something maybe that feels unfamiliar or foreign to you, uh, it is with great confidence that I assure you um, that if you open your heart to hear from him, uh, you will. He will speak to you. So welcome to the Church on the Rock Homer uh, family discussion. We're all in trouble. Just kidding. That's the first thing my kids ask. Like, hey guys, we need to have a family discussion. Wait, are we in trouble? No, it's just time for ice cream. This morning is gonna be a little bit different in that um, I don't have an outline. Well, I take that back. I have an outline. I'm not giving you like point one, point two, point three. There's a value to that. There's a value to summarizing some, some ideas into very concise propositional statements, right? It helps us hold on to it. Um, 
This morning, uh, as I've been wrestling over how to make my way through what I want to talk about this morning on the topic of repentance, um, that didn't really easily present itself. So uh, what's going to happen this morning is I'm going to kind of work my way through a, a linear train of thought from start to finish uh, in our time. And I will make some statements, and so if you want, if you're a note taker, you can jot those down. But remember, and I said this last week, as we talk on the topic of repentance, your self-deception is your greatest challenge. And I'm not pointing at you more than I point at myself. But it is exceedingly easier and more straightforward to identify uh, shortcomings and hypocrisies in others uh, than it is in ourselves. We are in many ways blind to ourselves and remain blind to ourselves apart from uh, the intervening work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us see and understand. And I want you to know this morning, before we dive in, is that the moment that you, that you see clearly, this is my invitation to you. Don't, don't argue. Don't debate. Don't go running off in your mind and in your thoughts. The moment... Uh, in this series particularly, the moment that God brings your own uh, deficiency, your own weakness, your own challenges or issues, the moment that he brings those to the level of conscious awareness, know that he has done you a great favor and given you a great gift. And just own that, knowing, and again, this is important if you're not here all the time, knowing that this is an environment of freedom in the Lord. There's nothing to prove. You're all screwed up and hopelessly lost, as am I. And yet God has invited us to live differently. Are you ready? Yes. You're ready. Is that light blinding you? Yes. <laughs> and an angel of the Lord spoke only to this section. Don't bow down and worship. It's just an LED. I don't know who just jumped up, but someone seems like they're going to fix it. <laughs> it's just funny. Hey. Bring your sunglasses next time. <laughs> you guys remember how the story begins? In the beginning, God spoke everything that we know into existence. There was no wrestling match, there was no conflict, there was no war in the galaxies. There was a God who exists, who is all-powerful, who is good, 
who is self-sufficient, able to do at all times exactly as he pleases, who is unchallenged in his authority. And he said, let there be, and there was, everything that we know, the universe itself, and not only the universe, but flesh, humanity, created by the spoken word of God. And there's a word used in Genesis in that creation narrative. There's a single word choice that's used repeatedly to describe, uh, to give an adjective to everything that God made. Do you remember what it was? It was good. Everything that he made in the state that he made it was good. In fact, it was one of the things that he made that he said was very good. And it was us. It was Adam. So God created uh, not only the universe, but the earth. And we can't, from our current vantage point, really access very well what the world would be like apart from the corrupting effect of sin and death. But if you can imagine, there's, there's no decay uh, in the world around you. Uh, there's no death in the world around you. If you can imagine having a set of appetites in your body that are exactly aligned with the will and desires of God at all times, doesn't that sound fantastic? Everything is in agreement with the good purposes of God. And yet in that environment, he, so he, he, he puts Adam there and lets him for a moment discover what it's like to be alone so that he would appreciate what the alternative is, maybe even more so. He says it's not good for man to be alone and he creates a woman and says, check it out. And he says, now I've given this to you. I've created it to give to you the God of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal God of the universe says, I have created all of this as a gift and a blessing to you. Why? Because in my goodness, I love to express that goodness in giving good gifts. And here's the crazy thing. I have endowed you with an unbelievable capacity. You can make more of you. It's crazy. And as you make more of you, you should spread out and take ownership of everything that I've given you. This garden, I know, it's pretty fantastic. You should see the Rocky Mountains. It's going to blow your mind. You should see Homer, Alaska. Whew. However, you are not locked in to the experience of my goodness. There is an opportunity for you to add to your understanding of goodness, your knowledge of goodness, your experience of goodness, the experience of evil. Now you need to know in advance, um, evil is not good. But also, um, I have a plan for evil. I'm going to do away with it. I'm going to destroy it. 
Now, the reason that's relevant to you is because if you decide to marry yourself to the knowledge of evil, um, that's, uh, you're going to die. That's, that's the end game. That's my end game with evil. But it's your choice. And so, and you've heard me talk about this before. If you've taken uh, my gospel class, some of this will be a little bit reminiscent. But uh, Eve stands there, actually Adam shortly later, stands there and weighs all of the goodness of God, all of the blessings of God, all of his perfect gifts, weighs that against uh, this fruit that will introduce me to a new set of experiences that God, who gave me all of these good gifts, says will kill me. And in that moment, I can't make up my mind. It's too close. I go... I mean, this is pretty great, but what if? We read that story, read the story of Eve, we think to ourselves automatically, how could you be so blind? And yet, every time that you're tempted with sin, every time that you hold in one hand all of the good, perfect gifts of God, and in the other hand, this thing that is sin that God says will kill you, and it feels like a close context or contest, you also uh, are deceived by sin. And so, of course, you know the story. Uh, Adam and Eve eat, and... Uh, as their reward, they get to know what evil is like. They get to know what sin is like. Um, they get to taste, uh, at first, the appetizer, which would then become the whole meal, the taste of death. There's something else about sin. Um, once you've chosen to marry yourself to sin, to disobedience, to evil, um, which only, of course, God can define for us, you cannot, you cannot separate yourself by your own power. Jesus says in John 8, 34, the one who sins is a slave to sin. The way that we experience sin is this, this corrupting bondage that enslaves our appetites to do things that we know to be harmful, both to us and to others. How many of you have ever done something wrong? How many of you have ever done something that you knew was wrong? How many of you have ever done something that not only did you know was wrong, but you had done it before, you'd experienced the evil consequences of that wrong thing and had a promise to yourself that you would never do it again? Who's in charge? It's the enslaving bondage of sin in our lives. John 6, 44, unless unless the Father draws a person, we do not turn to God. So not only are we enslaved to sin, but we're blinded to our need to return to our favored position, our experience of the goodness of God. And unless God himself reaches down and, and, and grabs a hold of us, we are hopeless. 
And here's the good news of the gospel, and I can't spend a ton of time on this piece this morning. But God did reach out. In fact, he didn't just reach out in the abstract. But we as followers of Jesus, as Christians, we believe in a God who came to us, all the way to us, who not only came to us, Philippians 2 says, he did not regard the fact that he was equal with God, he's talking about the Son of God, he did not regard the fact that he was equal with God as a reason or as a rationale to excuse himself from our need. Instead, he set aside all of his, what I would assume to be very great privileges as the Son of God in heaven. He set those things aside and lowered himself and took on our form, took on flesh. He joined us. He didn't just reach down from afar, but he actually entered into our experience. And as a man, served our need, our desperate need, and gave his life for us. And herein is one of the greatest mysteries of the gospel. One of the greatest mysteries of the good news of God, Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. It's not just that God reached down to save us, and it's not even just that he came to join us. But the gospel message, the good news of the love of God, is that we serve a God who right in the midst of our current struggle understands us. A God who says, I get it. What is your particular flavor of the month when it comes to sin? Is fear your primary struggle? Is that what grabs a hold of your heart and your mind, anxiety? Catastrophic thinking of what could happen? Worry is a sin, of course, but that doesn't matter. You don't have control over it. It controls you. Is it anger? What is your struggle? Is it the lust of the appetites? Eyes that can't get enough? Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's apathy, indifference inability to care about much at all. Maybe it's frailty. Maybe you just feel your weakness and you lack courage. Or maybe it's foolishness. You are one who wastes days and weeks and months. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in all things 
We serve a God who, regardless of your current challenge, your struggle, whatever sin is the one that besets your existence currently, wherever, wherever the battle is waged, that battlefront, wherever it exists right now, we serve a God who says, I understand, I sympathize with your weakness. Why? Because I too experienced the temptation to be overcome by fear. I too experienced the temptation to be overcome by anger. I too experienced the invitation to give in to my fleshly appetites, my lusts. I experienced all of it. Isn't that what Hebrews says? He was tempted in all things as we are. We serve a God who sympathizes with our weakness, who understands the power of sin's tempting allure in every respect. He says, I can relate. I understand. And I am for you. Knowing the brutal and horrific cost of sin, as displayed by the cross, he joined us and took the shame upon himself. He came to us full of grace and truth the God of mercy that triumphs over judgment. This is the love of God that nourishes the soul, that lifts up the countenance, and that heals the heart. This is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I want you to know this morning, it's okay that you can believe that for everyone else better than you can believe it for yourself. But I'm here to tell you this morning, it doesn't matter what it is. Jesus, the Son of God, sympathizes with your current struggle against sin. He's with you. That's the great God that we serve. It's actually not difficult for us from our current vantage point to think maybe he would have been better off just squashing us. I wouldn't think twice about squashing a spider in my own house. Do you think that the, the difference of capacity between a spider and me is greater than me and God? And yet his goodness compels his mercy and compassion and he came down and he joined us and he took on our frail state so that he could be an advocate on our behalf. And what is our response? The appropriate response is obedience to the greatest commandment that we would love him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. Right? We talked about that last week. If you missed last week, uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen. That is, that is uh, the thing for which we were created to be in loving relationship with God. But there's a second piece to that commandment because he's asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? And not only does he respond to the question, but he says upon these two commandments, everything else falls. And the second one is that you would love each other and the reason those are paired that way and the reason that's so critical is because your capacity on the second one is actually a litmus of your obedience to the first one. 
And this is where we wander into the realm of self-deception. If you say, I think I'm doing fantastic on the first one, it's the second one that I have a problem with, and I would say, you're not doing as well as you think you are on the first one. Because love doesn't come into our lives pointed in a particular direction, a convenient direction, towards the one uh, entity that never fails us. Love comes into our life as a new state of existence, a new way of being, as a transformation of the whole person. And it immediately begins to, to bleed into all of our relationships with people that are both kind and unkind, good and evil, and impacts all of those relationships. Love always does that when it enters into our lives. And so God says, the first commandment is that you would love me with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is important because it's going to tell you whether or not your love for me is genuine. Love each other. I'm going to share with you a little story from John 8. And it's a little story that, that captures what this sort of the grace and mercy of God looks like towards us and our brokenness. <clears throat> and I want you to, as I tell you the story, I'm going to kind of just read this short section. It won't be on the screen. I want you to just find yourself in the story. Jesus is in the temple. It's morning time. And he's, he's just begun teaching with a few people that have gathered. Johnny says, the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court they said to him teacher this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act which raises some questions where were these guys Now in the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such a woman, to put her to death. What do you say that we should do with her? And they were saying this to test Jesus so that they might have grounds for accusing him because they knew Jesus to be very merciful and compassionate. And they said, we're gonna catch him in hypocrisy because the law is very clear story says that Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground, but they kept persisting and asking him, and he straightened up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down again and began writing on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And eventually he was left alone. And the woman, still sitting there where she was in the center of the court, standing back up, Jesus said to her, Women, where are they? Does no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. 
It doesn't diminish the sin. It doesn't downplay it. It says to her and to the crowd, is there anyone here who doesn't relate? I like that it points out that the older ones are the first ones to drop their stones. Is there anyone here who doesn't get it? Who doesn't know what it's like to give in to the allure of sin? Anyone? This story, short story, certainly calls us out for our judgment of others of sinners caught in sin. And let's be honest, if she had been caught with one of your loved ones, you might be tempted to throw down as well. But that little story is more nefarious than you think. Because it has effortlessly effortlessly caught some of you, even just now as I told that story, in your own deception. Who did Jesus judge in the story? Who did he condemn? No one. And yet, if you're like me, as you hear that story, you're clutching your own stone just in case those religious accusers come back. Because while you certainly wouldn't judge her, you loathe them. Religious types. They are the worst. All those self-righteous, pride-driven Christians who think they are God's gift to humanity. Before I know it, I've taken a position that the God of the universe didn't take. A position that the eternal Son of God, for whom all things were made, by whom all things were made, through whom all things were made, who currently sustains the universe itself by the exercise of, of his will, didn't take. I take the position of, I cannot relate. And what I have found is that there's always one group I can't relate to. And it depends on my own makeup and my own wiring and my own experiences. Half of you can't relate to the immoral woman caught in adultery sleeping with someone else's husband. You can't relate. And the other half of you, I would suggest, can't relate to the accusers who care so much about this and want to see justice done.
Jesus was actually famously friends with both crowds. He was constantly in the home of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, attending dinner parties by invitation. And he was famously friends with those who had been cast out because of their immorality, prostitutes and tax collectors. Too often, we stand at our little podium of judgment and we claim, I can't understand how people could behave this way. And the worst part is, and I think the most offensive part to God, is that we wear our inability to relate as a self-validating badge of merit. You want to know how righteous I am? I can't even understand how someone could be like that how someone could be so sinful. I don't even get it. And in professing my inability to understand, I'm proving my own goodness, my own purity, my own righteousness, and take a position that the God of the universe was unwilling to take. The God who came down and said, no, I understand. I get it. I'm with you and I'm for you against sin and all of its effects on your life. We throw the one stone that Jesus was qualified to throw and yet chose not to the stone of our own lack of empathy. Is there anyone here who can't relate? I serve a God who sympathizes with every weakness while being proud of the fact that I cannot. Jesus turns to the crowd and says, is there anyone here, anyone, who can say with a clear conscience, I cannot relate to this. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I'm not a part of it. It forces the hand of every person present to acknowledge this is more familiar than I'd like to admit. I too know the vile grip of sin on my own heart. There's one thing that has repeatedly broken my own heart. Over the last two years in particular, It's the lack of love for Christians 
exhibited by a profound need to distinguish myself as better than most of them. We who have feasted at the feeding trough of sin gorged ourselves on the poisonous slop with the rancid juices still dripping from our face look up long enough to say man can you believe that guy can you believe her I have to believe it's the only time that Jesus says, now that I can't relate to. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians. For we are not bold to compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. Paul is actually responding to criticism, people who say they're better than him. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Every effort that you make to distance yourself from human behavior is actually driven by a lack of understanding. And it proves my own blindness. It proves my deception. It is my ability to accurately and honestly recognize my own brokenness, my own sinfulness. That is the outcome of a genuine pursuit of righteousness because it is only as I move towards Christ and am, am caught up in the love of God and the goodness of God that I actually begin to see my situation more clearly. I begin to see my sinful state more accurately. I'm able to more honestly deal with the fallout, the cost of my own brokenness. And this drives my compassion towards others. You ever had a three-year-old? I've had a bunch of them. I don't know if there's any category of human more persistently and violently self-centered than a three-year-old. And it's the cutest thing ever. So adorable. Blatantly dismiss authority in pursuit of their own stupid causes to their own hurt. And I just can't get over how cute it is. You're in trouble. Also, gosh, you're so friggin' adorable. You know who hates self-centered three-year-olds? Self-centered three-year-olds. I'll tell you what. They will go at it. I mean, you want to see violence escalate, have a three-year-old take a toy from a three-year-old. And yet in dealing with our own children at that young age, by, by God's design, most of the time, maybe not perfectly, but gentleness is, is the natural response. I'm careful. 
I'm gentle because I have an appreciation for the fact that this, this unformed human, undeveloped, incapable, self-centered, blindly self-centered, little human will only grow and thrive in the context of love and kindness and compassion and mercy. And so that's my, that's my natural instinct is to provide those things. Jesus sees our brokenness even more clearly than we see it ourselves, and yet he loves us still. And we in our smallness and our frailty, with our fragile egos and our powerful appetites, we say, you know who I can't stand? Those other three-year-olds, they're the worst. And the thing that we choose to be most offended by is always the thing that we struggle with the least, right? Listen to Jesus talking to the Pharisees, the same ones who wanted to stone this woman to death. Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Not only did they want the guilty to die, they wanted the innocent to die. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. How often I wanted to draw you to myself to be your source of protection and care and kindness. And you were unwilling. You wanted no part of it. What a beautiful petition from the one person who had no obligation to give it. You see, expressing your own self-righteousness, contempt for the sin of others isn't the problem. Having it is the problem. Psalms 101.5 Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. And now are you ready for the real clincher? I haven't told you the hard part yet. Once I tell you this, you can't unhear it. According to the scriptures, when it comes to judgment, when it comes to mercy, when it comes to forgiveness, the way that my heart is towards those who wrong me and others, you are currently writing the script for God to use when you stand before him face to face. You are currently establishing the measure of mercy and forgiveness and grace by which you will be measured by God when you meet him face to face. That is established repeatedly throughout the scriptures in a way that quite frankly, even though I'm not supposed to be afraid of anything, terrifies me.
Matthew 6.15, if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Matthew 7.2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged by your standard of measure will be measured to you. James 2.13, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We're not talking about calling sin, sin, and the appropriate response is not apathy towards human brokenness and sin. What's being addressed is a strong conviction of moral superiority that drives the way that I relate to others to sins different than my own. It has to do with the way that I think and feel and talk about my fellow humans and particularly the body of Christ. So what do you do? I said this last week. It is our love that Jesus predicted would be our defining characteristic. When you're transformed by the love of God, the love that flows out of you towards others, both the ones that harm you and the ones that harm others, will be so otherworldly, it will actually become its own apologetic for the truth of my claims. It will be validation of the substance of your faith the way that you care for each other, the mercy that you show each other, the compassion with which you act towards each other, that is the proof. Chris, you guys can go ahead and come up. So what do you do? You can't fix your lack of love for others by trying to fix your lack of love for others because your inability to love others is actually just an outcome of the quality of your love for God. And so we go back to the Lord. We go back and we face Jesus and we repent. Because only Jesus can show you how to love. Loving others unconditionally, magnanimously, benevolently is the natural, unavoidable outcome of loving Jesus rightly. And so if you're struggling here, go back here. And the starting point is always repentance. You loved me incredibly well. And I had the audacity.
audacity. While resting in your perfect love. To shove my finger in the face of someone else that didn't meet my expectations. Repentance. That's how we move towards love, repentance. Remember, repentance is a 180-degree turn. I've been headed this way, I'm turning around, and I'm going this way. Turning to Christ. I want to end with this. Because some of you know in Revelations, the first couple of chapters is actually a couple of real short messages to seven different churches. And there's one to the church of Ephesus that I think is relevant for us now. Listen to what he says. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. You've fought hard. You've worked hard. I know that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles. And and they are not. And you found them to be false. You have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And I would say the same about you. You've had to fight for what matters. And this I have against you. And in all of your fighting for truth, and you're fighting for what matters, and you're fighting for what's important, pointing out uh, lies, you left your first love. You, You slowly shifted to believing that fighting for what's right is the same as loving God. Therefore, remember where you have fallen. And repent. Do the deeds you did at first when your heart was fully captured by me or else I will come to you and I will take away your lampstand out of its place. Remember, the lampstand is the public testimony of the church. If you wander away from your first love into arguments about what's true and what's lies, and that becomes your expression of religion at the expense of loving God, your testimony will be removed from the world. So repent. Would you give us the grace would you give us the courage even now in a moment of reflection to honestly and humbly confess our lack of love
so thankful that you joined us in our weakness, that you experienced temptation of every kind so that you could be a strong support as we move away from sin and into righteousness and goodness. And yet I find myself so frequently falling short of showing that same kind of extravagant love to the people around me who do affect my own life. So God, I just acknowledge my self-centeredness, the excuses that I make for my lack of love, and I repent. gift of your mercy which invites us into worship pray even now as we are a work in progress as we are moving towards obedience God would you come to us we need you we need your presence the enemies we face are too great sin in our own heart is too powerful so as we look to you and praise God we invite you to come and meet with us you for those of you who are meeting with the house church tonight check in with your leaders to see if that's happening if you're meeting with a group tonight uh, I encourage you to just be open with each other about where you're challenged in obedience to the second half of the greatest commandment and pray for each other we're all in this together right and every time even in your mind's eye you find yourself turning to if you see him correctly, you will see kindness. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. <clears throat> we don't officially end till 1230. If you want to stick around and help us clean up, it's always a big service to our teardown teams. If you are uncertain uh, as to how your next couple of meals are coming to you, come and talk to one of our leaders. We'd love to give you some help today. Otherwise, uh, God bless you this week.